0: Good evening, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, shall we all please stand to honor the bride. Please take your seats. (laughs) Don't you just love a good wedding? If you've been to a few, you might have heard the sobering charge often given to husbands from the words of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes at weddings, we'll preach from Ephesians 5 verse 25, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's that's a solemn charge. With these fatherly tones, you can imagine the father of the bride looking the groom in the eye and saying, I only ask of you one thing, that you would love your wife like Jesus loved the church. You can imagine this charge coming with some emotion and even some intensity. It reminds me of a young man arriving for his first date and being given five rules by his date's dad. Do you want to hear them? Rule number one, and I've actually taken these to heart as my daughter has grown up. Rule number one, I have no doubt that you are a popular fellow with many opportunities to date other girls. This is fine with me, as long as it is okay with my daughter. Otherwise, once you have gone out with my little girl, you will continue to date no one but her until she is finished with you. If you make her cry, I will make you cry. Rule number two out of five, I'm sure you've been told that in today's world, sex without utilising a barrier method of some kind can kill you. Let me elaborate. When it comes to sex, I am the barrier and I will kill you. (laughs) Rule number three. The following places are not appropriate for a date with my daughter. Places where there are beds, sofas, or anything softer than a wooden stool. Places where there are no parents, police, or nuns within eyesight. Places where there is darkness. Places where there is dancing, holding hands, or happiness. (laughs) Places where the ambient temperature is warm enough to induce my daughter to wear shorts, crop tops, boob tubes, or anything other than dungarees, a sweater, and a goose-down jacket zipped up to her throat. (laughs) Movies with a strong romantic or sexual theme are to be avoided. Movies which feature chainsaws are okay. Soccer games are okay. Old people's homes are better. (laughs) Rule number four. Do not lie to me. I may appear to be a pot-bellied, balding, middle-aged, dim-witted has-been, but on issues relating to my daughter, I am the all-knowing, merciless god of your universe. (laughs) If I ask you where you are going and with whom, you have one chance to tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I have a shotgun, a shovel, and five acres of empty space behind the house. Do not trifle with me. Rule number five. Be afraid. Be very afraid. It takes very little for me to mistake the sound of your car in the driveway for a bomber coming in low. The voices in my head frequently tell me to clean the guns as I wait for you to bring my daughter home as soon as you pull into the driveway, you should exit the car with both hands in plain sight. Speak the perimeter password, announce in a clear voice that you brought my daughter home safely and early, then return to the car. There is no need to come inside. The camouflaged face at the window is mine. Fatherly protection for a potential bride or bride. The charge from the Apostle Paul was Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And tonight we want to look at a parallel charge. It's a charge given from one generation to the next. And as I've been thinking about generations and what PJ brought, uh, it's very, very helpful. So I've been thinking about generations, I found it helpful to think of a charging generation and a charged generation. And this charging generation is everyone who's played in the game up until now, it's a charging generation. And the charged generation receiving this charge is everyone who's going to help carry the game on forward from now the charge tonight is this, I charge you from scripture, love the church. Christ loved the church. Christian, I charge you tonight, will you love the church with the love of Christ? But at many a wedding that I've taken, I've often counseled married couples like this. I've often said at a wedding that don't think of love as a static concept. Think of love as a dynamic concept. And as we talk about loving the church tonight, don't think about it as a static concept. I loved, I am loving, I will love. Think about it as a dynamic concept. In fact, love, love in its true form actually matures with time. And often I'll tell, a bride and a groom on their wedding day, that there are three stages to love as it matures. Some of you have heard these. Stage number one in love as it matures is you love them, but you don't know them. And some of the married people are nodding their heads. Stage number two is you know them, and now you don't love them because you know them. (laughs) And stage number three, with perseverance and with God's help, you can get to stage three, which is you know them and you love them. So that would be our outline for today as we embrace this charge to love the church. I'm going to move through this outline. Then we're going to end by taking communion together. I'm so excited. Steve's going to lead us through that. And our text for tonight is, is uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you're not sure where it is, just uh, look around the Old Testament. Go to Matthew and then back a couple of books. You'll find Zechariah. I needed help finding it, so you might too. To provide a bit of context, what has happened is God's people have been taken into captivity in Babylon. But great news, there's a prophet called Jeremiah, and Jeremiah prophesied that this captivity will only last 70 years, and after 70 years, God will bring his people out of captivity, back into the Holy Land, back into the Promised Land, and there God would restore the temple, restore Jerusalem and the rule and reign of Messiah, and Jerusalem would become a beacon of light to the nations. That's the prophetic context. And the book of Zechariah is written towards the end of that 70 years when the first wave of Babylonian exiles has come back to Jerusalem from Babylon. They would have come carrying prophetic dreams for the new temple and the new Jerusalem. But life back in Israel was hard. And it looked like these promises, these great prophetic promises wouldn't come true. And so this book of Zechariah is written to God's people who are caught in the gap between the prophetic promises of God and the current realities of life. And that's where we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read it to you. Zechariah, uh, he gets these set of eight visions, and uh, we're just looking at one of them. And in this one, he says, then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left And another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Father God, here we are tonight, hungry for your word, thankful for the sense of your presence as we worship you tonight thank you for the sense of your favor through every moment of every session today but yet god still needy we need more of you god anticipating your blessing tonight as we go through your word help me as i speak to speak on your behalf (coughs) Help all of us as we listen, God. Open our eyes to see your glories anew. Tattoo our hearts with a love for your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Stage one. Stage one in our outline is there's a kind of love where you love them, but you don't actually know them. And so on uh, on their wedding day, they've done the courting thing and the jubilee premarital counseling course, but there's a sense, and you can only really know this when you've been married for some time, there's a sense in which you don't actually know them. You don't know what it's like to actually share a house with them, to walk in day after day after day and find the toilet seat up. To reach for your toothpaste in your own bathroom and whereas you would tend to carefully squeeze it out from the bottom, as a good human being should do, (laughs) someone's just grabbed it mid-tube and squeezed. (laughs) I'm speaking theoretically here. You don't know what they're like when the six-month-old is teasing. There's, there's a sense in which you love them, but actually you don't know them. But Timothy Keller has helpfully observed that even supposing that you did know them really well, marriage, being the profound thing that it is, changes a person when they enter into that covenant. So even if you knew them before, you don't know them afterwards because they've been changed by the marriage itself. You love them, but you don't know them. May I suggest that this is where the exiles on the way back from Babylon would have found themselves in the Zechariah context. You can imagine the excitement in the air as they leave captivity back to the promised land. Psalm 126 tells us that when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion... We were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. If you stopped any one of these captives and asked them if they loved Zion, the answer would have been a resounding yes. They loved Zion, but they didn't yet know what Zion involved. Christian, I hope that you tonight carry a dream in your heart that is reflective of the beauty, the power, and the potential of the local church and of local churches on a global mission together for the transformation of nations. I hope you've tasted something of Christ's dream for prevailing churches pushing back the darkness in communities across the earth. I hope that you've been ruined by a vision for the church like we find in Acts chapter two. My guess would be that some of you have these verses in your membership courses. It goes something like this. I'm reading from the message. That day, about 3,000 took Peter at his word, were baptized and signed up. Sounds pretty good. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pulled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. I think that sounds pretty good. I'm willing to sign up for that. I hope that you do have these verses in your new members' courses because that right there is a picture of the vision of advance to multiply communities like this across the globe. That's a good vision. And I want to charge you, next generation sign up for this vision and as i say next generation i'm seeing myself in both generations i'm saying to myself bonisi sign up for this vision again you know it's good to sign up again sometimes and if you have caught that vision for the church Here's what I would counsel you to do tonight. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, I want to challenge you to sign up for the vision if you haven't yet. Sign up again even if you have. And When you've signed up, I want to challenge you as you take that cup and that bread to burn the ships. Sometimes when I'm talking to a new couple, I try and give them some great advice I was given. That advice is this. While you're still in that honeymoon phase, while he's still still smelling like sweet-smelling cologne and while she still looks radiant in that stunning white dress, that is the time to make the decision that divorce is not an option. Am I telling the truth here? If you wait until year seven, when the last time you saw in a, him in a suit was seven years ago. If you wait for the storms to hit, that's a tough time to start making the commitments that hey, divorce is not an option. My challenge to us tonight, as we talk about loving the church, I want to challenge men and women, young and old, to burn the ships. What what I mean burn the ships, well, one generation declares his works to another generation and one of the things I'd love to hand on to the next generation is some of the songs that charged our souls when we were younger. As I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of words from a song by a guy called Steve Curtis Chapman. I expected a cheer, not an embarrassed chuckle. This was kind of... Saddle up your horses we got a trail to blaze. (laughs) No, not that song. It's this song. In the spring of 1519, a Spanish fleet set sail. Cortes told his sailors, this mission must not fail. On the eastern shore of Mexico, they landed with great dreams, but the hardships of the new life made them restless and weak. Quietly, they whispered, let's sail back to the life we knew but the one who led them there was saying, burn the ships, we're here to stay. There's no way we could go back now that we've come this far by faith. Burn the ships, we've passed the point of no return. Our life is here, so let the ships burn. Christian, have you done that yet? Have you put all of your eggs in one glorious basket? Have you burnt the ships? I want to encourage us to be thinking about that as we go through our communion moment. Stage number one is you love them, but you don't know them. Stage number two is you know them, but as a result, you don't love them. Now this In our Zechariah context, this would be the captives. Psalm 126, mouths filled with laughter, but now in stage two, they're back in Jerusalem. And they are, they're they're, they're facing opposition and challenge and there are walls that need rebuilding. They've been hit with with the realities of rebuilding Zion. Or to move to our Acts 2 analogy, listen to what I'm saying. If your vision for the church stops in Acts 2, you may have a deficient vision for the church. 2002, Family of Churches we were a part of planted the first uh, New Frontiers church in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. We started it with uh, a conference. We used the cutting edge of Marketing and media, we handed out flyers all over the city. Anyone who would take one, and printed on those flyers was the strap line taking the church back to the book of Acts. And I look back and I think, man, which chapter? <laughs> <laughs> because the assumption is yes, chapter two, we're, we're, we're reviving chapter two. And I bet a lot of money that Acts chapter 2 is in a lot of our membership classes, but I'm less sure that Acts 5, 6, and 7 also make the cut. You see, from the stunning vision of the Acts 2 church, Luke, without any shame or embarrassment, takes us to Acts 5, 6, and 7. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie about how much money they've given on behalf of the land that they have stolen. And if you think it can't get worse, it does because the two of them drop dead at Peter's feet. Acts chapter 6, the Grecian-speaking Jews start to complain against the Hebraic-speaking Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, which is funded by the selling of people's property that we saw in Acts chapter 2. Financial scandal is rocking the church. As John Stott so astutely observed... In the church in Acts, it was not all romance and righteousness. The church was facing opposition from within. And then in Acts chapter 7, the church faces a new level of opposition from without. As Stephen becomes the first Christ follower to give his life for that course. <clears throat> Through these chapters and acts and those that follow, we see heresy, hypocrisy, deception, division, disputes between leaders, imprisonments, and floggings. I don't know anyone who summarized it better than the Apostle Paul, who maybe 20 years into his ministry stated in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 13, up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Now that is a somewhat less compelling vision to give your life to. (laughs) I'm not sure that these verses make it into our vision and values courses. When we were looking for a name for the church in Nairobi, we never seriously considered scum of the world (laughs) ministries. (laughs) Refuse of the earth. What am I talking about as we talk about you know the church and now you don't love the church? I'm talking about when you've been through a bit of Acts 5, 6, and 7 when you signed up for an Acts 2 vision. I'm talking about when real life hits. I'm talking about us, here's the application point, and some of us need to do this as we take the communion bread and the communion cup tonight. Some of us need to. Embrace the gift of disillusionment. I want us to be helped tonight by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his excellent book, Life Together. He explains to us the importance of this step in the process. I'm not asking you to sign up purely on the basis and solely on the basis of a compelling vision that you can sign up for and burn the ship's. I'm presenting to us the gift of disillusionment. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, he, he says this. Track with me through these quotes. They're up on the screen. innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. (laughs) But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a general, a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief moment in a dream world. He doesn't abandon us to these rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. I know that was a long quote and if you've tuned out, you can tune back in at this moment and you'll get 90% of it. Here we go. (laughs) He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Put in today's language, Bonhoeffer is saying that if we can't love the church in front of us, warts and all, then it's actually not the church we love, but it's our fantasy ideal of the church. Does that make sense? Brothers and sisters, I charge you, embrace the gift of disillusionment. I charge you, love the church, love her just the way she is, love the church in front of you, love the church where the slides got all mixed up last week Sunday, love the church where the volunteers sometimes or often or all the time come late. Love the church where there is conflict and distraction and where, where, where things are tough, love that church. We preached through Song of Songs uh, middle of last year and uh, I remember hearing one preacher and he he was uh, preaching from the Song of Songs and he said, you know what? If you want to know what your taste in women is, husbands, look at your wives. If your wife is skinny, you're into skinny. If your wife is big boned, you're into big bones. And then someone said, but My wife was skinny when I married her, but now she's big-boned. And this guy said, well, then your taste just changed from skinny to big-boned. I don't know what church you signed up for to love, but I do know this. When Jesus says, love the church, he's talking about the church in front of you. Christian, love the church. Stage number three. You love her and you know her. Well, Zechariah's vision spoke to the disillusioned returned exiles in Jerusalem. And tonight I trust that it will speak to you and I as we face the challenges of frontline church planting and building across the nations. Zechariah chapter 2, then I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. This measuring stick, it, it represents the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which the exiles in one sense were doing physically. But God is trying to lift their eyes to see something beyond the current Jerusalem. Prophetically, he's speaking about a new temple and a new Jerusalem, and one day a new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. But this measuring line is talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the building of the church, if you like. And the man wants to measure the city so that they can rebuild the city wall. That sounds like a good thing. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said, Run! Tell that next generation man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. I love this guy, he's involved, he's serving, he's got his measuring line, he understands the vision, we want to rebuild the city, so he's got his measuring line, and he's going to do his bit, he's going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and how long it is, so we can get on with rebuilding the walls like God told us to do. But when the Bible says, go tell that young man in the vision, young here speaks of some inexperience. Some immaturity. This man's, he loves Zion, but his love for Zion is immature. Maybe he loves and he doesn't know, or maybe he knows and he doesn't love, but it's not yet a mature love. That's what the Bible is communicating to us. And the angel says to him, Hey, listen, this guy, I, I, I love your zeal, but it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. And in our remaining time, we want to quickly unpack three dimensions of the church that God is building, the work that Jesus is about. And as we do that, young man, throw your measuring rod away for two reasons. Reason number one is Jerusalem will be a city without walls because what God is doing in the new Jerusalem it's too big to be counted. It's too big to be contained. It's too big to be measured. God is about a great work. Zechariah says that one day the nations of the world will be joined with the Lord in that day. The nations will become his people. Now, this may frustrate those of us who like measuring and head counts and have apps on our phone called Church Metrics. But the magnitude of what God is doing in the church should both, in one movement, encourage us and humble us. John Piper observed that the United States of America, the superpower of today, compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The magnitude of what God is doing in the church should both encourage us and humble us. It should encourage us as an antidote to the pride, to the, to the discouragement that lurks within our hearts, and it should humble us as an antidote to the pride that lurks within our hearts. Spurgeon he was looking at this passage and he said, You know, it's interesting. The, they, they, they don't talk much about the measuring, they move on quite quickly. The man appears and he disappears, and Spurgeon says, You know, I think it's probably not a good thing for people in church business to be too involved. In the measuring of the numbers. And he reflects on David's census and what was the sin there, why did God judge it? And here's his helpful observation. He says, I do fear that it is hard for us to number the people at any time without committing a sin. Either the greatness of their number may lift us up and inflate us with pride, or the littleness of their number may make us despond and doubt the strength of God. How are your numbers doing? If they're more than expected, I pray for the grace of humility. If they're less than expected, I pray for the grace of encouragement. And you see the magnitude of what God is doing. God's saying, what I'm doing in the New Jerusalem, it's too big to measure. Throw away the measuring line. how 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 does that humble us? It humbles us because even if you've got the biggest church in your town, compared to that number that can't be counted from every tribe and tongue that God has been gathering for centuries, what you're doing is less than a drop in the ocean. That should humble you. And if you're struggling and you're tempted to include the cats and the dogs in the numbering, (laughs) just to try get things up somehow. (laughs) Be encouraged that no matter how small your corner of this is, you're a part of something much, much bigger. And your part is as real as that part. Does that make sense? Christian, be encouraged. Jerusalem Jerusalem will be a city without walls because it's too big what God is doing. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. Zechariah goes on to say that he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. The apple of the eye, that's the pupil, that's the black bit in the middle. And what you'll find is that your every reflex is designed to protect the apple of your eye. And every divine reflex is designed to preserve and prosper and protect the church of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Brothers and sisters in India and in Nepal, Jesus will be a wall of fire around you. As we're praying for you tonight, I had a sense that God wants you to know that what the church is experiencing is not attack, it is counter-attack. It is a response to the advance of the kingdom of God through your lives and through your churches. And this is the enemy's counter-attack to your attack and the gates of hell will not prevail against what God is doing. Take courage, dear friends. Jesus himself is a wall of fire around you discouraged leader, dis- dis- disillusioned saint, love the church because she is the apple of his eye, no matter what you're going through, remember God has not forsaken you. God has not forsaken her. Uh, we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The story is told of how the great reformer Martin Luther went through a period of great despair. And one morning... His wife appeared at the breakfast table wearing a black armband. Luther inquired who had died. His wife replied, Well, the way you've been carrying on around here, I thought God had died. (laughs) God's not dead. He himself is the wall of fire around his church. And last but by no means least, God promises, I will be the glory within. Do you get this? The church will be a great number, as great as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. Is that her glory? The answer is no. She will be surrounded by a wall of fire, triumphant through the ages, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Is that her glory? No. The glory of the new Jerusalem is the presence of the living God in our midst. Verse 10 of Zechariah says, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Final word from Spurgeon, the glory of a church does not lie in the architecture of the place where she meets, nice as the Jubilee building is, nor in the eloquence of her minister, gifted as the speakers we've heard today are, nor in the greatness of her number, nor the abundance of her wealth, nor the profundity of her learning, it lies in her God. Christian, I charge you, you love the church because the Lord lives among her. The Lord lives among us and he is her glory within. You want to see the glory of God? There's a time when you could go to a temple in Jerusalem and the glory came down and the priests couldn't stand to minister because of the weight of the glory of God in that place. But then there came a time when the Godhead himself was pleased in its fullness to dwell in a man called Jesus Christ who tabernacled amongst us. And we were were pleased to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But his intent was always that now. In a new temple, his glory would dwell. That's why in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, To him who is able to do immeasurably be more. To him be glory in the church. church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Christian love the church because that is where he dwells throughout all generations. Steve, I wonder whether you could come up and please lead us in communion.